really excited to introduce our guest speaker for today. His name is Scott Newfeld. I've known him for a number of years now, and he has become a, a, a friend, somebody who I deeply respect. He works for Journey Canada. He left the financial services industry in 2015 to intern with, uh, with Journey Canada. Since then, he's become the Vancouver Program Coordinator. Uh, but he is, a, he is a godly man who, who really longs to create a safe place for people to connect with Jesus. And whenever I hear him talk, whenever I hear about what's on his heart, he really is somebody who knows God personally, walks with God, and then longs for us to experience God's presence, finding life and victory and wholeness in him. And so I am really excited for you to be able to hear him today. I really believe that he has a prophetic word for us, a, a timely word, and that God is going to meet us in this time uh, through looking at John uh, 15. So prepare your heart and uh, let's hear from Scott today. All right, good morning, Every Nation Church. Thanks so much for having me here. Um, I think since COVID hit, we've all been experiencing this strange mixture of, on the one hand, decreased intimacy, but on the other hand, increased connection. Um, I've talked to so many people who've said, I've never spoken to my family so much or my friends, yet it's all over Zoom. Um, Journey runs uh, six and 18-week courses. And these we always swore would never be online. We'd always be in person for that personal touch with the ministry that we do. But during COVID, we decided, you know, we'll make an exception because uh, these are strange times. So we took our courses online. And with the course I'm actually running right now on Tuesday nights um, called Journey 101, the very first night, I remember meeting with my small group online and just wanting to reach through the screen uh, for some kind of tangible connection. It was so frustrating um, because you wanted to connect. And I think that uh, desire for connection, for real connection, is something that all of us experience, and it's increasingly difficult to find. So Jesus actually talks about our need for connectedness in John 15 when he talks about the allegory of the grapevine. And this is one of a series of final messages that he's giving to his disciples before his arrest, his trial, and his execution. Uh, so these are important words. These are his final words uh, that he's sharing. So this morning, what I want to do is look through the first 10 verses of John 15 and unpack them a little bit. So my wife and I spent uh, a week in the Okanagan Valley earlier this summer. And, you know, as you do, we went to a bunch of vineyards and strolled through the vines. And one vineyard in particular had a 70-year-old vine. Um, the, the gardener there, he explained to us that they actually imported this vine from one of the best winemaking regions in France. And a lot of the vineyards out there do this because uh, they want to make the best wine. And of course, the, the gardeners who tend to these vines, they want one thing, right? They want the maximum number of grapes possible. Uh, so their job is to tend to the soil, to the, to the vine, to the branches, to produce maximum fruitfulness, and eventually delicious wine. So likewise, as Jesus tells us in John 15, uh, God is looking to produce maximum fruitfulness in the lives of those people who call Jesus their Lord. The first important thing to note is that John 15 
is immediately following the Last Supper. So Jesus just finished telling the disciples that one of them would betray him. He said to them, I will be with you only a little while longer. Uh, to finish this off, Jesus says, I don't have much more time to talk to you. Um, so what Jesus is trying to do in John 15 is help the disciples recognize what their obligation and focus should be when he's no longer with them. Again, important words. Um, at the end of chapter 14, Jesus says, Arise, let us go from here. And it's not too much of a stretch to imagine that they got out of the upper room where they had supper and, and they were walking somewhere. Uh, scholars don't know where they were going, um, but some believe that Jesus walked through a vineyard on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so Jesus stops in this vineyard, probably points to the grapevines all around them, and this is what he says. These are the first 10 verses of John 15. I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit, so they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I'm just going to pray real quick. So, Father, would you come and speak to us? Uh, would you share with us the feelings of your heart around this passage? Would you open our ears and our eyes to hear what you're saying and to see what you want us to see? Amen. Okay. So as soon as Jesus mentioned uh, the grape and the vines and the branches, the disciples would have recognized this as one of the symbols of the Jewish nation, much like the maple leaf for Canada, the bald eagle for America, or the rising sun for Japan. And in the literature of this period, the vine was a prominent symbol for the Messiah, the coming Messiah. Um, and, and you can see in this picture, this old coin was minted around the time of a Jewish revolt against Roman rule around the time of Jesus. Um, and then this newer coin was one of the very first coins that was minted when Israel became a nation in 1948. So much like the caribou on our quarter, right? They have a cluster of grapes on, on their quarter is essentially what that means. So you can see how the grapevine has been a symbol for the Jewish nation over millennia. So the disciples would have immediately clicked into that. They would have also recalled the imagery of the Old Testament, where Israel was often referred to as God's vineyard or a vine, and it was often in a negative sense. So in Isaiah 5.2, for instance, it says, God plowed the land, he cleared its stones, and planted it with the best vines. In the middle, he built a watchtower and created a wine press in the nearby rocks. Then he waited for a harvest of sweet grapes, but the grapes that grew were bitter. So the first thing Jesus says in John 15, he says, he is the true or the genuine grapevine. 
So in all the Old Testament references, Israel is a failed vineyard. It's a failed vine, despite God's careful cultivation. So Jesus is the true vine because he was truly fruitful, um, where Israel was never truly fruitful, as God intended it to be. Just as, you know, observance of the law was never able to bring about real life or fruitfulness, right? But faith through Jesus does bring life because Jesus was able to fulfill the law. And I want to notice that, uh, I want you to notice that there are two things the Father does in this passage. First, he cuts off every branch that does not bear fruit. So this could sound pretty terrifying um, if you're, you know, sitting at home wondering, am I doing enough? If I'm not doing enough for God, is he going to cut me out? Um, this sounds pretty awful. And most people have understood this to be synonymous with verse 6, where branches are to be thrown away and burned. But as I was studying this passage, I found that uh, the Greek word for cut off, which is iro, um, is better translated as to lift up. Um, and this was what some commentators were also saying that I read. So iro has four basic meanings which are one, to literally lift up, to raise from the ground. The second meaning is to lift up figuratively, so like to lift up your eyes or to lift your voice. The third meaning is to lift up with the added thought of I'm carrying it away. And fourthly, it's to remove or to cut off. So that fourth meaning is what's traditionally interpreted here. But if we chose to go with the primary interpretation or the primary meaning, which is to lift up, it would be like this. It would say, he lifts up every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit. So what does that mean, he lifts up the branch? Um, well, uh, Bruce Wilkinson, he wrote the book, The Secrets of the Vine, and he goes into some details here. And he had a chance to speak to a vineyard owner um, in Northern California. And this uh, gardener, he explains that new branches have a tendency to trail down and grow along the ground, but they don't bear fruit down there. When branches grow along the ground, the leaves get coated in dust. When it rains, they get muddy and mildewed. The branches become sick and useless. They would never throw away those branches, though, because they're way too valuable to be discarded. Rather, the vine dresser walks through his vineyard with a bucket of water looking for those branches. He lifts them up and washes them off. Then he wraps them around the trellis or ties them up. Pretty soon, they're thriving. So when you consider your faith, just take stock for a second. Have you ever been or are you right now in a season where you feel like you're on the ground? You're covered in dust. Maybe you're covered in mud. Maybe you're suffering from spiritual blight. Um, do you sometimes feel the opposite of fruitful? Do you feel like your faith is dying? So the Father is looking for you with his bucket of water. He's walking between the rows of the vineyard. And he wants to wash you. He wants to restore you. He wants to bind you up. He wants to help you get some sunlight so that you can thrive. Okay, continuing on. The second thing the father does to care for the vine after he tenderly lifts up the fallen branches is he prunes the ones that are already fruitful. So my boss often says that it's not long in choosing to follow Jesus that he will ask you to give up something that you love. Commentator James Boyce says that this word prune also can mean cleanse and refers to the ancient equivalent of insecticides. So kind of picking off, uh, you know, harmful insects and moss and parasites. 
uh, from the branches. So where in your life is God trying to prune or cleanse you? You know, for some of us, this might be a relationship that's harming our faith. It could be an issue with gossip, uh, maybe an area of unforgiveness or resentment. Maybe God is wanting to prune away fear that he won't provide for your needs. Or perhaps a lack of generosity, poor spending habits. It could be overeating, something that I struggle with in times of stress and when I'm feeling sad. For me, a big area of pruning was pornography. Um, I really loved it because it was the only place that I believed I could go to relieve stress, anxiety, and to experience some kind of intimacy, even though it was false, um, in my loneliness. So I wrestled with this addiction for a decade, um, probably more than a decade, in my teenage years, young adult years, and it took about that long before I allowed God to begin pruning that area of my life. It was a really difficult process of exploring the reasons why I had gone into that addiction in the first place with counselors, with friends, and in the Journey Discipleship course. And it was ultimately when I discovered that God really loved me, that he cared for me, that I was able to begin to let uh, pornography go. Today, I still struggle with temptation, and you know I've had to make really drastic choices to stay sober. But with God's help, every single day, I'm making that choice to let him continue to prune me in those, those places of my life. So again, the question, where are your places in your life where God is trying to prune or to cleanse you? And I believe it's completely, completely deliberate of God that he first wants to draw us closer to himself by lifting us up before he prunes, right? I think he knows that we need to know that he cares for us before we'll be willing to allow him to um, take things from our lives that aren't helping us, but often that we love. Um, but pruning doesn't always have to be this painful, excruciating thing. It's sometimes. But I think sometimes it could be a natural process of maturing as we're growing closer to the Lord. So, you know, it can be a process of surrender. So you can see in this picture, it's like Jesus offering a better toy to this girl and, she, and he's saying to her, just trust me. Or you can just grow out of the toy and you just end up leaving the toy behind. So moving on in verse 4, Jesus says, Remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. So what does it mean to abide or remain in Jesus? Well, first, it's spending time in prayer and the word. Secondly, it's obedience. So let's unpack that. Um, the Greek word for remain or abide is meno, and it has two primary meanings. One, it's in reference to place. So you're lingering in a place. Two, in reference to time. So you're spending time somewhere. You're staying a while. So basically, when you're in a long line at the grocery store, you are abiding in the grocery line. Um, but literally, it means to stay or live with, um, as in John 2.12, where it says that Jesus stayed there a few days. So what Jesus is saying is we need to, need to find a place to pray, and we need to make the time to pray. And this isn't that hurried kind of prayer, right, where we're kind of checking it off a list, going down the list, like, God, I need this, God, I'm thankful for this, and then you kind of just leave the room. Um, this is more of us getting, getting quiet, slowing down. Um, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 6, When you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, 
and pray to your Father in private. And Jesus modeled this prayer. Luke 5.16 says that he often withdrew to the wilderness to pray. So even Jesus needed to abide. Um, when he was on earth, he abided with the Father. So I prefer praying in the morning before work. I brew myself, myself a nice cup of coffee. I go to the second room in our basement suite, which is a nice private space. You know, I'll invite the Holy Spirit to meet with me. Um, sometimes I'll start with a prayer my spiritual director taught me to pray. I'll say, Lord, give me the desire to pray and the grace to begin praying. Because sometimes I just don't feel it. <laughs> um, sometimes I'll start by putting on some soft worship music, which helps uh, just to kind of quiet my mind. Other times I'll just sit and let my prayers kind of come up naturally. Sometimes they're for friends and family. Sometimes it's for the things that are really weighing heavily on my heart. Sometimes I'll journal. Sometimes I won't. Um, you can use a devotional. You can, you know, obviously read scripture. And, you know, if you're new to this kind of thing, you might want to take all the clocks out of the room because that can make it feel even more arduous. Um, but every single time I finish uh, my time of prayer, I ask the Lord, is there anything you'd like to say to me? And I wait and I listen. And this is the core ingredient of abiding in the vine, I think, is taking the time to draw near to Jesus. You know, it says, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. Um, so when I first began cultivating this prayer life as a teenager, it was this long, boring, kind of an excruciating experience because I used to watch three hours of television a day. I spent many hours playing computer games and reading novels and comic strips. And so a lot of that was dissociative behavior because I didn't want to deal with, you know, my fear and anxiety, uh, which I struggled a lot with and, and still do in some ways. And so I just wanted to check out, right? And that's why I was engaging in a lot of those uh, in TV and, and whatnot. So trying to stay still and quiet brought up a lot of that inner turmoil that I was running from, and it was very uncomfortable. And the more, though, that I learned uh, to quiet my mind, the more I read the scriptures, the more my spiritual ears were being attuned to discern the voice of the Lord from my own anxious thoughts and from the spiritual static so it's in this kind of humble place of developing a relationship with Jesus that, that is the wellspring of all that Christians do. And, you know, some Christians have a lot of leaves but no fruit. There's a lot of busyness. There's a lot of activity, but there's no joy. There's no peace. You know, a lot of Christians know a lot about Jesus, but they don't actually know Jesus because they haven't taken the time to get to know him. And sometimes it's because we don't want to take the time to know ourselves. Um, so abiding prayer is about waiting and listening as much as it is about praying. And I'm convinced that prayer that listens as much as it prays is really courageous prayer. Um, because in those quiet places of prayer with the Lord, yeah, we're loved, but we're kind of also laid bare. Um, and this is what I mean. Um, abiding prayer does a few things. One of them is it exposes our heart condition. Like I said, um, we're, we're kind of, first of all, abiding with ourselves when we choose to get quiet and, and get still. Um, and some of us aren't comfortable with that because of those troubled thoughts and anxious thoughts that might come rushing forward and they're asking to be dealt with. Um, also, the digital nervous system that we're tapped into with our devices, social media, it's keeping a lot of us distracted um, from this quiet abiding place. And then when we finally do try to pray, we're kind of disabled because of all the noise, right, that we've been inviting. And I also worry for a Gen Z who've grown up on the iPad. 
um, this entire generation who will have to rewire their brains in order to get still and get quiet. The second thing abiding prayer does is it exposes our view of God. So if some of us were really honest, when we think about um, letting God, you know, look at us, um, we would admit that the eyes of God sometimes feel unfriendly. So we might think he's disappointed in me, he's ashamed of me, he's angry with me. Maybe you think he's disinterested in me. He's aloof, he's unavailable, the heavens are brass. Uh, maybe you think he's got more important things to do than spend time with me. Or like I used to think when I was a young teen, you know, if I really take the time to listen to the Lord, he's going to tell me to sell everything I own and go to some terrible missions field. Um, but the reality is, that abiding prayer will bring peace to our turmoil if we persevere in it, the turmoil inside and the turmoil outside. Um, abiding prayer will bring us face to face with the real God because God can show you who he really is. We come with some preconceived ideas of who he is and he will break those down if we persevere in prayer. Jesus says himself in verse 7 that he'll bring answered prayer as we are in abiding prayer and also that in verse 11, he says, we'll experience his joy. So we have to choose to press through these uncomfortable feelings and beliefs, and it can actually get messy. I remember nearing the breaking point in my fight with addiction. This is probably uh, 2011. I remember not knowing what else to do to break free from my unwanted behaviors. I had fasted from solid food for 40 days more than once. I would prayed a lot. I'd read my Bible. I'd gone to deliverance ministry. I'd seen a counselor, but nothing had had any lasting effect. And the realization hit me that God was the only one who could change the very fabric of my desires. And that if I could just deliberately put myself in his presence and sit at his feet, I didn't even need to say the right words. I just needed to sit there. That by virtue of proximity, his presence would change me, whether I felt it or not, from the inside out. I still believe this. And so I flung myself at Jesus. And this was when I was around 24. Um, and I began to abide with him in my bedroom and in a posture of resting and trusting and waiting, not just filling the time with words. And the Lord stirred my heart to begin praying many of Paul's New Testament prayers over my life, including Ephesians 3. And I prayed this prayer for myself for I think it was at least a year. Sometimes it was, it was daily. Lord, help me to experience your love, though it is so great, I will never fully understand it. And may I know, as all the saints should, how wide, how high, how long, and how deep your love really is, so that I may have the fullness of life and power that you give. The Lord knew that I needed to abide in his presence and experience his love to break free from sin. I was hooked on a fast food diet with pornography, right? It didn't demand anything from me. I didn't have to wait for anything. It was mine for the taking whenever I was hungry. The church, unfortunately, that I had been a part of was offering me a starvation diet. They just said, don't do it, but without providing a compelling reason for why I shouldn't. And if a starving man is given a burger, they're going to devour it, right? So the Lord knew that I hadn't yet tasted of the feast that he was offering me in the gospel right? The rich nourishment that comes from abiding in friendship with him and experiencing his great love for me. And so the Lord began to answer my prayer as I was praying that Paul's prayers. 
Uh, and he began to move in my heart and began to experience the love of Jesus in tangible ways. And the Journey Discipleship course was a big help with this. And so Jesus would visit me in my imagination in prayer. I would see myself, you know, on a lake, in a boat, or under a tree in a field, something like that that felt safe and inviting to my heart. And Jesus would be with me, and I struggled with so much self-hatred back then that, you know, I really was afraid that Jesus hated me too. But in these prayers times, I could, I could sense from Jesus that he wasn't ashamed of me. Um, I just felt love from him, and I knew um, that he would never abuse me. He would never shame me. And my heart began to believe that he was the safest and most trustworthy person in the entire world. And, and I remember he was just so glad to see me. And even yesterday, I'll admit, you know, I hadn't prayed for, at least in an abiding way, for about a week or so. And I sat down to pray and I had these guilt feelings like, oh, I should have been doing this more often. I'm preaching on this tomorrow. And, you know, I'm not praying like this as much as I'd like to. But I just felt the Lord just say, I just want to be with you. I'm so glad you're here. No guilt, no shame. He was just excited to meet with me. And so in these pictures, in my imagination, in my heart, I remember just diving into Jesus' chest, and he would just hold me. And, and in real life, I would just be sobbing um, as I felt his warmth and comfort wash over me. And as the pain of, you know, not being comforted through these struggles that I had came out of me. I remember I used to complain to my counselor that hugging Jesus felt like hugging fog. And I think he must have heard my complaint because those hugs from Jesus are better than any I've ever had. And so I was incredibly lonely, right? I was starved for affection, affirmation, and attention. All addicts are to one degree or another. And so as I began to feel his love pouring into my heart, um, after these times of prayer, I would feel something solid inside of me that I didn't feel before. And I could tell that my heart was growing more in love with him. So I began to be able to say no to fast food and no to starvation because I'd found the real thing. I discovered the true vine. Now, I was single at this time, and I really believed with all my heart that I was the luckiest man in the world. Um, I didn't care about being celibate for the rest of my life anymore because I had something far greater than marriage, something that people search the world to find. So my question to you is, what are you abiding in? What are you trying to draw life from? We're all abiding in something, whether it's Christ or not. So what are we making space and time for in our lives? Some of us are abiding in our phones, uh, trying to find nourishment there. Some of us are abiding in the pantry, in the refrigerator, looking for comfort and control. Some of us are abiding in our careers, trying to draw life from our achievements. But only Christ gives life real life, abundant life. And when good things become ultimate things, where we try to draw life out of them, they produce anxiety, disappointment, and despair. So it's only as we're connected to Christ that we will experience and produce what is real. We will never outgrow this need to stay connected to Jesus because a relationship with Jesus is where the Christian life begins and ends. And he's so emphatic about this, he tells his disciples, you can do nothing without me. And he's referring to nothing of permanent value or worth. So what does it mean to be fruitful? Fruitfulness can certainly be, I think, displaying the fruits of the Spirit, the list in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, etc. But I also believe that these fruits are referring to good works. 
as Jesus refers to in Matthew 5.16. He says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. These are not works that lead to salvation, of course, um, but works that are an outflowing of Christ's life and love in you and through you. And I believe that, you know, just as a branch passively receives the sap from the vine and voila, there's grapes, like the branch isn't going like, got to make grapes, right? It just kind of happens naturally. Uh, without striving, without strategizing, it's a result of just being in the presence of God. And I think it's also as we allow the Father to care for us, right? As we let him love us, we're producing that fruit. So going on, um, the final verses we'll look at here, 9 and 10. I have loved you even as the Father has loved you. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. So the second part of abiding is obedience. So obedience is a loaded word. Um, it's largely despised in our culture. You know, it brings up uh, thoughts of submission, subservience, dependence, and maybe the abuses of patriarchy. So our culture rages against this, right? It's all about rugged individualism. I only obey my wants, my desires, and my feelings. Um, but I believe there is nothing so powerful to break the power of sin as obedience. Just look at Jesus' death on the cross, the ultimate act of obedience, and how that act created this cosmic ripple effect and defeated death itself. Jesus says later in verse 13 that his death on the cross is the greatest love that is shown because he laid down his life for his friends. So the cross is simultaneously the greatest display of obedience and the greatest display of love. So we cannot ignore Christ's call to obedience, no matter how politically incorrect it might be and no matter how triggering it is to hear it. I believe that when we choose to obey the voice of Jesus in our lives, it has a power unlike anything else to break strongholds of sin and to usher in transformation and healing. Obedience can sometimes be painful and humiliating, like when I was living in community and whenever there was a new housemate and sometimes it was a revolving door in these community houses, I would have to leave them a note and say, hey, uh, welcome here. I'm a recovering porn addict. Could you please put a lock on all of your devices? Thank you. And that was my introduction. And it led to some great conversations. But every time, that was a humiliating choice for me. And yet God honored that obedience, and I found the Spirit breaking into my life in beautiful ways as I stopped pretending that I was some Christian superhero that didn't need any help. So sin is what threatens, or, uh, threatens to compromise our connection to Christ, and it severs and impairs the flow of his life into your heart, right? It's severing or impairing the flow of the sap from the vine to the branches. So when he says, obey me to remain in my love, He's not withholding his love when we sin. Rather, when we sin, we're not allowing him to love us. So where is God calling you to obedience? That's precisely where he wants to move in your life. Because every opportunity to sin is also an opportunity to be loved. And it's our choice. So in those areas of your life where you're, you're in disobedience, I need you to hear God saying to you, let me love you there. So as you make time to abide with Christ, uh, we make space to pray, to listen, as we choose to surrender our lives to him in obedience, we will bear fruit for the kingdom of God and God will use our lives to make the sweetest wine. He'll use our lives to help him bind up the brokenhearted, to set captives free, 
and will experience life and life abundant and will know his joy. So in closing, I just wanted to finish with a time of prayer. And I want you to just get comfortable, um, get in a posture of prayer. And I want you to use your imagination as we pray. So if you could just get in your head a picture of yourself as a branch. You are a branch connected to Jesus, the vine. What is the state of your branch? What does your branch look like? Just allow the Holy Spirit to be speaking to you. What is the state of your branch? Are you on the ground? Are you covered in mud? Are you tied up on the trestle? Are you bearing fruit? And I want you to notice what's the condition of your leaves and the condition of your grapes. Is there anything there that might need some pruning, need some care? Now, I want you to imagine that Jesus is approaching you. He's the gardener today. And be aware of your reactions. Maybe you're feeling fearful. Maybe you're feeling ashamed. Just acknowledge those feelings. They're okay. They're normal. But as much as you're able, I want you to invite Jesus close as close as feels safe for you. And how does he interact with you? What does he want you to know? And for some of you, he has his bucket of water and he wants to wash you. And so for some of you, I just want you to take courage and just give him permission to wash you. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are our true vine, that you are not a counterfeit. Thank you that we are connected to you. Would you help us, Lord, to thrive? Would you help us, Lord, to bring honor and glory to the Father by producing fruit? Would you grant us the courage to let you love us? Would you grant us the courage to sit in your presence and abide with you there? Would you help us to experience your love, Lord? Amen. Amen.